Church family and friends, it's good to see you here this morning. Grateful that you are here to worship together the wonder and glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, if, if you're like me, uh, undoubtedly all of us in this room either are experiencing or have experienced uh, a time of, of chaos and conflict in our lives. Now, they're going to say if you're like me because it's easy for me to just look out at the world and see nothing but chaos and conflict. It's easy to look out and see the chaos and conflict and to become discouraged, disheartened. On my end, to sit back and go, oh my goodness, how, how, how do I raise children in, in this kind of a world where I'm having to think through things that my parents never had to think through with me? Maybe it's not on a world level. Maybe it's more on a personal level, conflict, chaos with friends, family, in the workplace. You can go on down the line. We live in a place and in a time of chaos and conflict. And the question before us today is, is it possible in the midst of chaos and conflict to live, move, and breathe with understanding, understanding of what's going on and what God's up to, with peace in our hearts, guarding our hearts and minds, with courage that does not back down no matter the intensity of the chaos and conflict? It's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it. So we're going to go to Daniel chapter 10 to answer it. Daniel chapter 10. If you'll turn with me to Daniel chapter 10. Uh, we, we, we've been in the book of Daniel now for several weeks, and, and as we come to chapter 10, we actually come to the final section of the book. Thus far in Daniel, every story or prophecy has been, has been neatly a chapter. Well, Jan Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12 all go together. Daniel chapter 10 is the introduction to the vision of Daniel chapter 11, which Daniel chapter 12 is then the, the footnotes, the conclusion to. As we come to Daniel chapter 10, listen with me what the Word of the Lord says. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message or a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true, it was accurate and one of great conflict, of great suffering or warfare. But he understood the message, and he had an understanding of the vision. Here's what it says. This is the, the introduction sets us up. In the third year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus comes, comes to, and by third year we mean of, of the Persian Empire where they've conquered Babylon. So we're talking about a time that's roughly 536, 535 B.C., three years after 538 B.C. when Cyrus will lead Persia and conquer Babylon. In the third year, Daniel receives some kind of word vision from the Lord. And what he sees and what he hears, he recognizes that it's, it's true. It's not just a nightmare. It's not a bad dream. It's not indigestion from a horrible meal. It's real. It's accurate. Not only that, but what he sees, what he understands is not something that brings much peace to his heart. It's of conflict, of suffering, of warfare. And he understood at least the main point. Something's coming and it's not good. And it says, in those days, I, Daniel, had been in mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat and wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment until all the three weeks were complete. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was at the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris. So here's what Daniel says. He, he sees this vision of great conflict. Now, at the same time he sees this vision, here's what else is going on. Uh, we know from Daniel 1 that Daniel serves administratively until the first year of King Cyrus. 
Okay, so Daniel's likely a year or two into, we'll call it retirement. He's around the age of 84 or 85. Back about two to three years prior to this, Cyrus issued a proclamation, we find it in the book of Ezra, to send any Jews who want to, to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to worship in the house of their God. And so Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they lead a group of 42,000 Jews back to the promised land where they seek to do exactly that, to rebuild the temple and to bring back the proper worship of God. But we know from Ezra chapter 5 that from the point that they get back there, the people who are who have taken up residence in in the 70 years, the 70 year exile, are actively opposing them, seeking to to ensnare them. They're trying to stop them. They're getting lower level Persian officials to come against and stop the building. And, And here's Daniel undoubtedly getting words of this, seemingly powerless to do anything. He's no longer in an official place. Not only this, but God gives him a vision of great conflict and it drives him to a place It weighs so heavily on him that he sets himself fully and completely. For 21 days, here he is, he's he's taking a kind of fast or he's eating only what's necessary to sustain his life at old age. He's not using any, the, the, the ointment is in the kind of heat they would face there, they would use that ointment to bring relief and help protect the skin. So there's an aspect in which he's even letting off of basic Uh, basic hygiene care in a way because he is so determined to seek the Lord, says that he is mourning, that the state internally is deeply sorrowful as all this comes to head. And so there he is on the 24th day of the first month, some two weeks after Passover and a week after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, by the Tigris River, so he's at least 20 miles outside of Babylon, and look what it says. He says, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, or that, it's, it's a kind of translucent, yellowish, sparkling stone. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult or the sound of a roaring, a multitude. So all of a sudden in this state, 21 days, three weeks of intense mourning, of fasting, of humbling himself and seeking the Lord, he's out there by the banks of the Tigris and he looks up and here is this man of glorious splendor hovering over the the great Tigris River. And he describes a description of garments of linen like that of a priest, a belt of gold like that of a king, skin that is radiating brilliance like that of a stone, a face that is glorious and, and, and unable to be fully gazed at like lightning eyes like flaming torches, seeing all things before whom none can hide, and arms and legs like polished bronze, strong, mighty, unable to be stopped or dented, and at whose voice sounded like a roaring too great for ears to come in. He looks up and he sees a man of glory, and it says, now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. So Daniel's out there. The implication is there's other people out there, but only Daniel sees the man. 
While the men who were with me did not see the vision, nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, so they ran away to hide themselves. They didn't see the man. They didn't necessarily hear anything, but something grips. These men can sense they are in the presence of glory, and they are not glorious. They run and hide. Daniel is left alone to see this great vision, yet no strength was in me. Now he's even more weak. My natural color turned to a deathly pallor, quite literally the splendor of man turned into corruption, and I retained no strength, but I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Or maybe let me put it this way, as he heard the sounds of the words of this man of glory, he completely passed out in a prostrated state before him. Now, what a scene. What a scene that's happening. It's obviously Daniel's not just hallucinating. The other people who are around, they're aware, but only Daniel can see. And so we had to ask the question, who, who is this being? And let me tell you, there are many solid pastors and scholars who, who have a really good case for multiple different options, all right? So I'm going to tell you, to the best of my study, where I land, I think I'm right. There's a lot of people that agree with me, but there's people I respect that disagree with me, so just understand that. But who is this person? Is it just an angel? Could it just be an angel? It's possible it could be an angel, but I want you to listen to this description elsewhere in Scripture. Listen with me to this. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flaming fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters." That is the description of the risen Jesus Christ to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1. I think what you have here, church family, is Daniel in the midst of this time where his people are back in the land after 70 years, but worship in the temple has been halted due to opposition and oppression, even by some Persian governing officials. He hears, hears this word, this is distressing, he's old, he's out of, out of work or out of the official sector, he's unable to help, he gets this vision of suffering, and, and here he is seeking the Lord, and he has a picture, a vision, he sees before him what I am very convinced at minimum is at least a vision of God, but is very likely a vision of Jesus himself pre his incarnation. Glory, hovering, not only that, but this isn't the only time someone sees a vision of Jesus and people are with him who don't see or hear Jesus, but flee in terror. The other time, Paul on the road to Damascus, when Jesus appears to him and to everyone else, they just hear this thunder and they sense the glory and they flee. Not only that, but, but before whose glory do men seek to hide themselves, not angels, God. Jesus was not just a man that God gave Godhood at at the moment of baptism. Jesus was not just a man who seemed to be like God. Jesus has always been God. He's God here in Daniel, and He's God in Revelation. Jesus is God, and He reigns in glorious splendor. He is our faithful high priest, clothed in linen with a belt of royalty because He is our King. 
He is omniscient in all his knowledge with his eyes burning like fire. He is omnipotent with arms and legs of of burnished bronze. He is awesome in power when he speaks. It's like the roaring of thousands upon thousands. Church family, we need to understand today that what Daniel sees reminds us that Jesus is not our homeboy. Jesus is 100% the one who in the glory of God said, don't you dare keep those little children from me. Let them come. Jesus is the one who weeps with those who weep. Jesus is the one who, who brought healing. Jesus is the one who ate with tax collectors and also understand He is the one before whose glory we fall prostrate, which when we really understand that makes even more magnificent the fact that Jesus humbled Himself and came in the form of a man, not just any man, but as a servant for the purpose of dying, Philippians chapter 2. So Daniel sees this and he falls prostrate, but this isn't the end of the story. Look what happens. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Then he said to me, now he who said this would be the hand. Now we're going to discover in a minute that this one who's touching Daniel is not the one hovering over the the rivers. This This is an angel. This is someone new. So behold, a hand touched me woke me up, got me off of the ground and onto my hands and knees where I'm trembling in weakness. He said, O Daniel, man of high esteem or man of great value, understand the words I'm about to tell you. Stand upright, for I have been sent to you. And when he spoke this word to me, I stood up trembling. So we've moved from prostrate to all fours to now standing but still trembling. Then then he said, this being the angel, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart on understanding and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. So Daniel sees this picture of the glory of God, the glory of Jesus. He passes out, an angel comes, helps, gets him onto his feet, and says, Daniel, don't be afraid. You are highly valued in the eyes of God. And 21 days ago, you, you humbled yourself to seek Him, and you sought Him with fervor and passion. You sought Him, you began praying, and the moment God heard your words 21 days ago, He sent me. I've come in response to your word. Don't miss that. If Daniel doesn't pray, the angel doesn't come. The angel says, I've come because you prayed and God heard you the moment you prayed. But look at this. Well, why the delay? But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me was opposing me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came with me, or Michael, we know is the, the archangel or an archangel, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you understanding what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to days yet future. Now here's what the angel says. The angel all of a sudden peels back into into a place that you and I are by and large oblivious of. He says, Daniel, 21 days ago, you began to humble yourself and seek the Lord. You are favored in God's eyes. He loves you. His eyes are on you. He, He sees you and he heard you and he sent me at that moment. But the reason there's been a delay is because for the last 21 days, I've been locked in battle with the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now you say, well, who's that? Well, let me tell you, it's not Jake Gyllenhaal from the movie from 2010. Okay? The prince of the kingdom of Persia is, is, I'm going to give you a short version, is a demon 
or group of demons that have been assigned to the kingdom of Persia for the purpose of opposing God's will and oppressing God's people. And he says, for 21 days, I've been locked in battle. It was a stalemate until Michael, one of the chief princes, Michael, whom we know from the rest of Scripture by chief princes as an archangel, until Michael showed up and we took him out and, or, or he, he freed me up and, and I've come now to deliver you a word about what's going to happen in latter days. Now that word in the latter days, we'll get to that. That's next week, so don't get lost there. Just make a note next week. So here's what all of a sudden he does. By the way, when you get to the end of the passage, he says, I've come so that you would understand, but, but now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, meaning, hey, once I give you this message, Daniel, I'm headed back into battle with these demonic forces. Oh, and by the way, the prince of the kingdom of Greece is on his way. Now, all of a sudden, we get peeled back for us, church family, and we need to understand something very clear today. So let me just put this simply, and there's going to be a slide behind me that's going to have some scripture references that I'm going to mention pretty fast, and I don't want you trying to keep up and write down and worry. They're there. They'll stay on the screen, so you can write them down if you want. We'll put them online. But you and I need to understand something today. We need to realize that there is a supernatural and heavenly war that is raging all around us. Angels and demons are real. They are not made-up figures to try to scare little children into obeying religion. They are real. Now, I'm using these terms broadly to refer angels and demons. Angels, all those who are loyal to God. Demons, all those who are against God. They are supernatural beings who are created by God, who reside in the spiritual realm and are composed of spiritual reality. We know this, Colossians 1.16, that Jesus created all things visible and invisible. And the rulers and powers and principalities, angels and demons, are created by God. So they're they don't stack a chance against Jesus Christ, but they're powerful spiritual beings. We know from Colossians chapter 2 that the moment Jesus went to the cross and paid the price for our sin, it says he took those demonic powers and held them up for open shame, meaning this, the war that's raising around us, it's already been won. Demons don't win. They're powerful, they're mighty, they're terrifying to us who, who seem oblivious to them. But understand, Jesus has already won when he went to the cross on our behalf, the victory he secured for us. We know that demons actively oppose God's will by blinding the hearts of unbelievers. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, why, why, why is it, if it's so obvious that Jesus is, is God, why is so many people just not by it? Because it's not only their own sin that's blinding them, there is a supernatural blinding from the enemy. This is what he does in the life of unbelievers. We know from 1 Peter 5 that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people of God to devour. He can't keep you and I from salvation. If you're in Christ, you've been saved. Satan can't, Satan can't, bring, can't bring you into death. But through temptation and fear and insecurity and doubt, through the battle for our minds, he can get us to a place where if we believe His lies over the truth of our Lord, He can rob us of experiencing and knowing the fullness of God's joy and salvation that we should know this side of heaven and rob us of reward that God intends to give us for faithfulness that side of heaven. Amen. 
John 10.10 says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The aim of the, the demonic host is nothing short of complete and total destruction. And here's what this passage shows when it says that the, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, the prince of, of Greece, what this implies is that there are demonic hosts that have been assigned to nations and peoples for the purpose of influencing culture through the leaders of those cultures to oppress, restrict, and silence the people of God and oppose the will of God and lead humanity into destruction. By the way, Ephesians 2.2 mentions this when it says that we who were once lost walked in the way of the prince of the power of air. Understand, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that the idols that we bow down to, the idols themselves are absolutely false, but that there are demons behind them, according to Paul. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, you're telling me that that culture, that cultures and, 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 and leaders in culture, and that's more than just governing officials, you're telling me that, that there's active demonic influence. You're telling me that all around there are demons seeking to blind hearts and lead astray. Well, we didn't sign up for this. Wrong, we did. God says in Romans chapter one that he made it unbelievably clear he is God. Such that if, if, if we were to look out with a sound mind, we would look out at creation and go, you know, somebody made this. And somebody, it says that very clearly in Romans chapter 1, what God made evident around us and even within our own heart, the eternal longing of our heart to be right with our Creator, that we in our own sin, not someone else's sin, my own sin has suppressed that truth. And so God looked down and handed me over to what I wanted, which were the false gods of this world, which we call demons. We chose to be blind by our own sin. Never forget, Adam and Eve chose the lies of Satan, having seen, heard, and walked with God for years prior. I say years, we don't know how long, but the point is they had seen, heard, and walked with God, and they still decided the lie of the enemy was better. That's why we're called sheep, church family, because we as humans are incredibly valuable and we are dumb. We chose this. And so we need to understand, church family, we don't want to ignore this. We don't want to overread into it. There's not a demon behind, your, behind every evil policy enacted. We're good, enough as, or we're good enough in our own sin as humans to make evil policies on our own. There's not a demon behind every body ache you feel, but do understand this. There is a supernatural war taking place, and demons are in the halls of the White House and Congress, our own state capitol. They're in doctor's offices and principal's offices. They're at the Kremlin. They're at the EU. They're in the United Nations. They, they roam the halls of Disney and Fox and CBS and NBC and any other headquarters you can think of. We must not be blind. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that our battle is not liberals versus conservatives. It's not lost versus saved. It's not Republican versus Democrat, East versus West, USA versus Russia. The war that we are fighting is one with the powers of darkness. But most of us walk around blind to it. And here for a second, God pulls back the layer through this angel to Daniel and says, Don't you dare be blind, Daniel. Don't you dare be blind, church. There is a supernatural war taking place all around you. 
So how do we respond to that? That's enough to put us on our knees. You're telling me there's angels and demons. I don't see them. I don't hear them. I can't feel them. And there's stuff going on in our culture that's bigger than just this human beings and acting policies. Yes. Well, that's enough to put you on your knees. Well, it does. Look at Daniel. Look what he says. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face to the ground and became speechless. He's terrified. I don't know what to say. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. And I opened my mouth and I spoke to him who was standing before me. I said, oh, oh, Lord, he's talking about this angel. So Lord, smaller L, this being who's greater than him. As a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me. I've got no strength. How can such a servant of my Lord talk with, with you? As for me, there remains no strength in me and my breath has left. He says, I'm weak. I, I can't handle this truth. I don't know what to do. How, how can I? So the one with human appearance touched me again. And he strengthened me. And he said, O man of high esteem, O man who's deeply valued, do not be afraid. Command, do not fear. Peace be with you. Take courage. Be courageous. And as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. So he said, Do you understand why I came to you? Now I shall return to fight against the prince of Persia. And so I'm going forth. Behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, First, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth, what is inscribed in the book of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Now, there's a lot that goes on here, but here's what you need to see, church family. One, watch. Daniel, in the midst of being weak, in the midst of being overwhelmed, you find that God is personal in his communication. God's goal for Daniel, you catch it? Stand up and understand. God's goal is not to confuse Daniel any more than to confuse us. He doesn't want us confused or in the dark. God wants us to be living eyes wide open, fully rare of what's going on. He's personal in his communication. He's personal. You say, well, I haven't ever had an angel come to me in the middle of the night. Guess what? If you're in Christ, you got better than an angel in the middle of the night. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you to bring to remembrance the words written in this book. God is personal in how he communicates to us. Not only that, but we find that he is tender in how he cares for us. Do you see that? The angel, Daniel goes from, from exhausted and on the ground to on his knees to standing up to, to back scared and speechless to being given strength to work. Do you find Daniel in and of himself lacks the strength to respond to the grandeur of everything he's just been told? But God in his tenderness is ready to strengthen Daniel with a strength beyond anything Daniel can muster so Daniel can actually understand what's going on and commit himself to respond in faithfulness. God is tender in his care, church family. Verse 19 is the key. What is he calling Daniel to? Oh, Daniel, remember, you're beloved by God. Don't be afraid. Don't let all of this take you down to despair and fear. Instead, peace be with you. Your life should be marked with peace. Take the courage of God. And, and, and once you take the courage of God, go be courageous. Stand resolute in the face of all opposition. Because God is personal and his communication, and tender, and his care. And as you come to the end of this church family, there's been an overriding truth we've seen all throughout Daniel that again comes here, which is God is sovereign over the chaos of this world. The passage starts within the third year of Cyrus the king. Cyrus, according to Isaiah 50, uh, 45, written hundreds of years prior, is named by name and called God's anointed. God said Cyrus would be king because God's word comes true and because he knows Cyrus will become king. God said Cyrus would return the Jews because what God says comes to pass, and God said Cyrus will return the Jews because he knows what's going to happen. 
The Jews returned after 70 years, just like God said, because God is sovereign. And temporal worship would resume 70 years after it ceased, just like God said, because God is sovereign. We've already seen in Daniel that the waters can sometimes symbolize the broken chaos of the world. Who is the one reigning in glorious splendor, hovering over the waters in sovereignty? It's Jesus. He's sovereign. Not only that, but did you see, I've come to tell you what has been inscribed, what has been written down in the writing of truth, or quite literally, the book of truth. Now, we know for everyone who's saved, their names are written in the book of life. We know that there's a book that records all of our deeds, right or wrong, that those who are not in Christ will be judged on the basis of the deeds written in that book. Daniel, or David speaks about the fact that all the days of his life had been written in God's book. And here we hear that there is a book of truth in which God has written out the story of history, which implies his plan of redemption, which has come to pass. There is salvation from brokenness. There is salvation from sin. There is healing and restoration in Christ. And we live in between the first coming and his return where all things will be set right. Why? Because it's been inscribed in the book of truth. God is sovereign over it all. And if you and I really understand, church family, because here's, here's the question. We've seen introductions to visions all throughout the book of Daniel, and they're about two verses long. Why the entire chapter? Why is all of this recorded down? It's because God wants to be sure, church family, that is, we live in a world of chaos and conflict. He wants us to be sure and comforted that it is, in fact, possible to live understanding what He's up to with peace in our hearts and courage in our lives. But it's because we have to know and be assured that despite the reality of the warfare around us, that God is sovereign over the chaos of the world, that He is reigning in glorious splendor, that He is personal in His communication, and He is tender in His care. And when, when you and I understand that truth, church family, it drives us to act it drives us to act as those living with understanding, with peace guarding our hearts and minds, with a courage that doesn't back down in the face of whatever it is you may be facing. You go, well, well then what are we supposed to do with that, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. Here you go. Four things from the passage we're going to do. One, we're able to live with understanding of God's will, with peace guarding our hearts and minds, and with courage by submitting to Him despite our fears. He alone is sovereign, church family. Do you see the proper response when you really see the glory and greatness of God? The proper response is not, God, when are you going to give me what I want? The proper response is to hit your face, to submit. For some in this room or maybe online, you don't know Jesus Christ. God has said your works won't save you. Your church attendance won't save you. Your Christian parents won't save you. The only possible way you can be saved is by confessing you are, in fact, a sinner by birth, who does sin in action, that you are in active rebellion against me, but, but my son, Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ, who lived the life we couldn't live, who died the death we deserve to die, who rose again to offer salvation to sinners by grace through faith, that if you will confess that he is Lord, and in fact he did rise from the dead, you will be saved. Got news for you. The only way you're going to know that salvation is by submitting to him. How you decide you want to be saved won't save you. Only how God determines a person can be saved will save them. For those of us who've been saved, we have to submit in sanctification. Church family, he's written plans for us in his book. Our life is not our own to live and do what we want with. 
So we've got to submit and fulfill. Here's the reality. Many of us are scared to submit to God because to submit to God means really coming to grips with the fact I'm not in control. But we need to all understand, church family, we're not in control. And when we submit to Him, there is a peace that comes with truly submitting to Him who is in control. We see Daniel, even before he has the revelation, he's submitting. What is he doing? He's humbling himself. He's setting his face to seek and understand God. All of this is part of submitting to Him. By submitting in spite of our fears, by praying in spite of our doubts. Church family, Daniel prayed because God is God, not because Daniel always got the answers he wanted in the timing he wanted with what he wanted. We've seen time and time again. Do you realize that the visions of, that these visions of Daniel have been taking place over 20 years? Over 20 years, he and God have been going back and forth on these visions of what would come. And, and really, if you want to get to it, back it up 50 or 60 years to Nebuchadnezzar's vision from chapter 2. Yet Daniel doesn't seem bothered by the fact that sometimes God feels silent. Instead, he just keeps praying and keeps seeking because God is God. He believes he is who he says he is. He persisted though he suffered, and he persisted though God might have seemed silent. Church family, we must pray because he is God. We must pray because God calls us to pray. We must pray because He works through prayer. We must pray because prayer is not optional. It is essential for our lives and His purposes in this world. Do you notice? Daniel doesn't have a clue that angels are fighting the prince of Persia. But Daniel's prayers are impacting the fight against the prince of Persia. You and I aren't told to pray to angels. In fact, we're never to pray to angels. We're not told to pray, to spend time in prayer, uh, praying, to de praying against demons by name. We're told to pray to God the Father through the blood of Jesus in the power and will of the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, God moves and stuff happens in ways we don't ever see. Not just in this world, but in the spiritual realm too. It's why all of a sudden it makes you think about Paul's command that we pray for our leaders. Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, that we pray for God's will despite hostile leaders in the example of Elijah, James 5, that we pray for unity as a church, John 17, that we pray for spiritual growth and wisdom, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, Colossians 1, 9 through 11, church family, we are called to pray. We engage in spiritual warfare by actively submitting, resist, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee. We engage in spiritual warfare by actively taking captive the thoughts of our mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and according to the great armor of God passage, when we put on all the armor of God and we stand firm in faith by the gospel of peace and we take the sword of the Spirit, it says that we are to pray. There may be some in this room who go, Pastor, my body aches, I can't do very much. There may be someone online who's like, I can't even get to church in person. Why am I still? What is my purpose here? Can I tell you this? If you still have air in your body, church family, it is guaranteed at minimum that if God has still left you here and not called you home, it is because he intends for you to pray. And well, a long time ago, we got off on a place in prayer where prayer is what we do before meals, prayer is what we do ceremonially. No, prayer is how we fight. And I've said it before, and I'll remind us and call it to us again. If we are not a praying church, church family, we will not do anything in the spiritual battle that is going on around us. 
If we are not praying families, we will not do anything when it comes to trying to disciple and raise kids. If we are not, if we are not praying peers going out into our schools and workplaces, we are blind to think we will have much impact or effect. When the early church saw the persecution coming from the governing officials, did you notice they didn't come back together and go, all right, let's get our action plan in place and let's figure out how we can change the policy. It said they came together, they dropped to their knees and they prayed. And they prayed believing that if they would pray, God would hear them and God might actually show up and do something. We have to pray, church family, in the same way. We're going to know how to live in understanding of God's will with peace guarding our hearts and courage by submitting, by praying, by pursuing faithfulness despite its costliness. Understand, church family, for us to be, cost, to us to be faithful, it will cost. It may cost you fame and applause. It'll cost you time and energy. It'll cost you money. It'll cost you gifting. It'll cost you ease. It may even cost you friends and family. It cost Daniel to pray faithfully. He ended up in a lion's den. At, at the age of 80. It cost Daniel to know the Lord deeply. Can you imagine? I want to know you, Lord. Give me visions of what's going on. Do you see what Daniel ends up with as, as a result of those visions? In mourning, in agony, in sickness, laid up in bed, it cost Daniel to know God deeply. It cost Daniel to seek him faithfully, mourning and fasting. Church family, faithfulness to the Lord is costly. And if we really humble ourselves and die to self for the worship of the glory of God, it's not costly, but it's also joyful beyond what words can describe. It's joyful. There's a popular idea out there where I can somehow follow Jesus and, and get no cost or no suffering involved. And I don't mean to say it's costly to discourage us, but to, for, to cause us to evaluate, do we really want to know God as He is, church family? Do we really want to hear what God has to say, no matter what it may be? Do we really want to live in reality with Him or just kind of our, our, our little special version of Him? Understand, men like Daniel, great men and women of who followed the Lord, whose faithfulness has cost them, they didn't set out to try to suffer. That's dumb. That's a real easy word. Everybody should get that. It's just dumb. They didn't seek out suffering. In fact, they didn't necessarily even want the suffering, but they wanted something more than the avoidance of some suffering. They wanted Jesus at any cost. Church family, do we? Understand, we're going to be able to live in the midst of chaos and conflict with understanding, with peace, and with courage by submitting despite our fears, by praying despite our doubts, by pursuing faithfulness despite its costliness, and by knowing His strength despite our weakness. All throughout this passage, Daniel's not enough. He's not enough. He's not enough to know what God's doing. He needs the angel to tell him. He's not enough to stand on his own two feet. He needs God to stand him up. He's not enough to walk with God his own, on his own. He needs God's strength to, to move and speak. Church family, we are not capable of knowing and understanding and walking with God all on our own. Amen. We need God's regeneration to reconcile us 
We need His redemption to know Him. We cannot clean ourselves up. We cannot clear out our ledger of sin. We cannot remove our rebellion, work off our debt, or leap the chasm of eternity to save ourselves. You cannot save yourself. You need God to do it for you. And by the way, He's paid the price, but you have to choose to respond, and you can do that today. For those of us who've responded, we need the Holy Spirit to convict us and instruct us and help us understand what the Word of God says and how it applies to our lives. We need the grace of God, which is sufficient for all things, through the Spirit of God living within us to perfect the power of God in our lives because we are not enough, we are weak, and this is the key to victorious Christian living to overcoming sin and temptation. We need the healing and rest of God to be able to hear and discern him. Just as a side note, do you notice this is the same thing with Elijah? Daniel's at a rock bottom point, he's exhausted. Do you notice the first thing God does is not tell him everything? The first thing God does is restore him to enough health so he can stand on his own two feet to comprehend it. Very practically, some of us in this room, you need to go take a nap this afternoon. You need to find ways to clip some busyness out of your life. You need to go to the doctor you need to pursue maybe just practical physical healing because if when we are wiped and exhausted, it is hard to hear and discern the voice of God. Now, God can overcome that in trying circumstances. It's not a limitation on God, but understand we're talking about Daniel wasn't in a trying circumstance. He was just being tried with the word that was there, church family. God actively works to break us of our strength so that we will live in the sufficiency of His grace with the fullness of His power. It's not easy, but it is His way. And if we're going to learn to live and move and breathe in a world of chaos and conflict with an understanding of what God is doing, with a peace that is unshakable, though we live in truly frightening moments, with a courage that doesn't back down no matter what the opposition is, it's only going to come when we understand the truth that God is sovereign, that He is glorious, that He is personal, that He is tender, and our response to that is to submit, it's to pray, it's to pursue faithfulness despite the cost, and it's to do it all in His strength, not our own. It is easy for me to look out today, church family, and want to go hide and throw my head under a rock. Everybody's mad at everybody. Met with a pastor this week. We were discussing something. Pastor Stephanie said, look, if you say this, you'll be hated. If you say this, you'll be hated. And it wasn't even over anything controversial. I look out and I go, oh my goodness, how am I going to raise my kids in this world today? Not only that, but as a pastor, am I even going to get to raise my kids in the world today? Or will I be silenced and locked up? And I'm not trying to fearmonger. My whole point is I'm not immune from those kind of thoughts and the discouragement and the, the shakiness that can come. But there is a path for me and for you to live with understanding, peace, and courage, and it comes from Him. Amen. Church family, we may not like the times we're living in, and tomorrow may in fact be darker than today, but we were made to live in such a time as this. When Frodo understands the weight and cost of taking the ring to Mordor and the Lord of the Rings, he and Gandalf have a conversation, and he says, Gandalf, I wish this had never happened. Gandalf says, so does everybody who comes upon such times. You're not any different. All you must do is decide what to do with the time given to you. But then he goes on and he makes this statement. 
There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides that of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you're meant to have it, and that is an encouraging thought, church family. There are other forces at work in this world other than the demonic host, other than sinful and broken people. There are other forces at work in this world because God is still at work, working in and through men and women's hearts for His good will and purpose. And church family, we must not allow fear and busyness to keep us weak and distracted and unable to hear His Word. We must not allow temptation and self-centeredness to keep us from costly faithfulness. We must not be found prayerless in such a time as, as when the battle of souls and eternity is raging around us. Church family, God is. He moves. He is calling people. He is calling His people, and He is looking for our response, and He is waiting to move to see will we stand in the gap. Now, in a moment, I'm going to pray, and we're going to move into a time of invitation and do it a little different. When I finish praying, just start singing. And do a little different today. There's some in this room or online. You need to understand the message today to you is you're trapped in the conflict and chaos because you're not saved. And there's a salvation in Jesus Christ, the only salvation that there is for you today. And we would love to help you know him. You can respond right where we're at. You can come down front to the pastors. We'll help introduce you to him. For others up in this room, there may be sin we need to repent of. There may be encouragement. We just need to sit and be strengthened as we, as we sit on these truths there will be some in this room you need to, to, to tether your life to the people of God in this church. But as God moves in this time of invitation, may we not be found idle. If God's stirring is simply for you to stand and sing, then, oh, church family, brother and sister, would you stand and sing and praise with all your might, for he is worthy. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you. You are good, you are great, and you reign. And God, we need to encounter and experience you today. Jesus, your word's been proclaimed. Just as you hovered over those waters, so, Jesus, you sit on the throne high and lofty and above. And so we raise our eyes to you. Holy Spirit, as you move and stir and prompt our hearts, find us faithful to respond. Jesus, it's to you we look, and it's to you we respond, and it's in your name I pray.